We're in a little series we're calling the New Creation Stories. Um, and, you know, the thing about the book, the sacred book um, of all the Abrahamic faiths, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, in our case it's the Hebrew Bible and the apostolic writings, is that the people who um, are the source originally for these writings um, saw the world differently than we do. And in particular, they saw the world as an enchanted place. And this was just a, this was just an instinct and an intuition, and it affected everything about their experience of the world around them. You know, uh, I noticed in the uh, song we were singing, uh, the, uh, there was the phrase, the, uh, the breath, the spirit, and the wind were all combined in a song about the Holy Spirit. And that's no accident because the Hebrew word ruach means spirit, wind, and breath. And it means all, it has all three meanings like almost simultaneously and equally. So imagine what it would feel like if you grew up in a world where there was one word for wind, spirit, meaning God's spirit, and breath. Wouldn't that change your experience? You'd have a, a sense of the enchantment of this world that when you felt the breeze, you'd have a sense of God's spirit like coming over you. When you were paying attention to your breath, you'd have a sense of the source of that breath is God, it would all be connected in your experience. Um, humans in this um, view of the world are understood to be uh, priests who carry the image of God on the earth, and the earth is God's temple. In that time, there were temples, and the priests would carry the image of the God that was worshipped in the temple into the temple. And what if your primary understanding of yourself as a human being is that you carry the image of God like a priest, like that's your special role as a, as a human, and the whole earth is God's temple, and you're just walking around carrying the image of God. The word glory, that's a, you know, that's a big word in the Bible, glory, the glory of God. And the, you know, the, the, the people who um, try to understand what these words mean, they, they struggle because the closest it seems for what glory means is something like shining radiance. Shining radiance. So it's like the sunshine in spring. We got a little bit of a cloudy day. Easter was like bright sunshine and I think the tree out there was flowering for the first time and like that, that is, what if that were your understanding of, of glory? So the Bible is more than a text to poke. The Bible is a mystical pipe to smoke. I mean, it's, it's giving us an enchanted view of the world. So, and I actually, I get this feeling in concentrated form from reading the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Gospels. After he was risen, there are accounts of Jesus coming in like a transformed, transfigured, bodily but spiritual way to his disciples. And he just appears to them, and he appears to them in, in rooms, he appears to them along a road, he appears to them on the side of a lake, he appears to them on a mountain, and he comes and he goes, and it's a, it's, it's a 
heck of a thing. Um, it's like the new creation is kind of peeking into this creation that we're also familiar with. And I have been reading these um, post-resurrection appearances differently since I read a chapter that Emily and I wrote a book together, Solus Jesus, a Theology of Resistance. And Emily was doing the uh, chapters on scapegoat theory, and she had a whole extended section on the life of Joseph. And I have been seeing the post-resurrection stories in light of the story of Joseph in a way that I hadn't before. Joseph was the brother who was almost murdered by his 11 brothers, and then he was thrown by his brothers into a well instead, and he was scooped up by Egyptian slave traders, and then he rose to prominence in Pharaoh's court in Egypt, and then he was falsely accused by the wife of the chief of staff of Pharaoh, and he was thrown into prison, and then he rose to even higher uh, prominence in Pharaoh's court, and a series of things happened. And then, at the, toward the end of the story, the, those 11 brothers who originally betrayed Joseph came to Egypt because there was a famine. And Joseph had uh, like stored up grain in his very powerful position, and that's where you could get some food was in Egypt. So they came, and they didn't recognize Joseph as their brother. How would they? It's so much older. He was, you know, probably all decked out and in his pharaoh bling. And he doesn't show himself to them right away. And it's clear over a series of chapters that Joseph is kind of an emotional wreck meeting his brothers for the first time. And he puts them kind of through a series of tests before he finally reveals himself to them. And I, I see an echo of this in uh, the resurrection appearances of Jesus over a period of what would have been like five, five weeks. And there's a way that these episodes, um, they kind of meet us right where we are in Michigan in springtime. You know, the world around us is lighting up. We'd all like, wouldn't it be great to have more time to absorb all this beauty around us? But then we're also living our lives in this world and we're dealing with our stuff. You know, we're dealing with our emotional stuff and, and we're maybe licking our, our emotional wounds and maybe we're causing some along the way and we have our dramas and our soap operas that we're living through and it's like the beauty and the ashes are all mixed up together that's what's going on in the resurrection appearances so we're going to look at one of those today emily looked at one um last sunday and this is a preceding one it, it, it's the one that occurred on the uh, first day of the week the day the morning of the resurrection and then there was evening and then there was this appearance um and i'm just going to read a few lines, comment on it, so you can picture the scene, and then we're going to focus on one aspect of it. Um, and I'm, I'm using the David Bentley Hart translation, which is extremely literal and close to the Greek, and I think it brings out some things that are important. Begins, when therefore it was early evening of that first day of the Sabbath week, so it would be our Sunday, but it would be the first day of the Jewish week, which ends on the seventh day, which is Saturday, and the doors were locked for fear of the Judeans. That term is used because they are in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people at that time were composed of like different groups. And the Judeans were the ones who were like centered in Jerusalem. And it was a different politics. It was a different dynamic. Um, it's really important for us to keep in mind that the person who wrote this was probably an observant Jew himself. 
He's writing, uh, though, to an audience that he knows includes some Gentiles. And so, like, now, when we hear the term, the Jews, you know, it's like, ooh, it's like a trigger for anti-Semitism and all that kind of stuff. And the author of this gospel didn't know that all this was going to be happening. Didn't know that the church was going to be taken over by the Roman Empire and infecting it with white supremacy and infecting it with anti-Semitism. I mean, like this would be happening four centuries later. And, and so we always need to mention that when these terms are referenced to understand them in their original context. He's talking about the people in Jerusalem where all the big events had happened in that passive, Passover including most recently the crucifixion. And then here we go. Jesus came and stood in their midst and says to them, the narrator shifts to the present tense. Everything else is past tense. You know, when you're telling a story to a friend and you're, you, you, you kind of want to like replay exactly what happened and then you shift into the present tense and he goes and then he says and then I say and then he says you're in the present tense because you're inviting people to like, like come into the experience as though it's happening now you're inviting them to like enter it by their imagination and this is what the author is doing who wants us to picture this Jesus came and stood in their midst and says to them peace to you we read this pietistically, like, you know, it's a religious language. This was the equivalent of hello. Jesus said, hello, shalom. And saying this, he showed them both his hands and his side. They're in a room, they're afraid, there's a lot of anxiety. Jesus appears, he says, hello. And then he shows them his hands and his his side. That's the, that's the greeting. Interesting greeting. <laughs> um, this is the second appearance of Jesus after his resurrection in the Gospel of John. The first is to, in John 20 to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was with Jesus at the lynching tree, so to speak. He was, she was right there, as were some other women. The disciples were not right there at the lynching tree. They were running for their lives and protecting their own skin. And it was the women who had the courage to be associated with Jesus at this horrible experience. He did not need to show Mary his wounds because she had seen them while they were happening. She didn't need to be like re-traumatized by seeing them. But now he's with those closest circle of friends who had actually abandoned him in his hour of need, had really betrayed him. And he's seeing them for the first time. He says, hello. And then he wants them to see his wounds. It says he showed them his wounds. It was his decision to show them his wounds. Um, what, are, what are wounds like this? We, obviously, we're talking about scars from the crucifixion on his hands or wrists and on, in his side. Well, a, a wound is a reminder of a past injury that often carries some residual effect of the injury, right? If you have a scar from an injury, that is both a reminder 
of a past injury. But scars also carry a kind of lingering residual effect of the injury, don't they? I mean, scar tissue isn't as flexible as, uh, as regular tissue. Sometimes it aches or it will twinge or whatever at times. Um, in, in sign language, um, you know, you know what the sign is for Jesus? It's... What if we didn't say the name Jesus for a year? You know, which has been a name that's been shadowed and darkened by a, of so much horrible stuff. And instead of saying the name Jesus, we used the sign, you know. And we just went like that. That, that to me is really, uh, that is something. Um, so he's physically fine now. He's risen. He's, in fact, he's better than ever. This is like a great day for Jesus. Um, but he carries the reminder of the past injury and the residual effects of the injury. And those residual effects would be emotional, wouldn't they? Especially when he's seeing the disciples for the first time who betrayed him, who weren't there for, for him when he needed them. So isn't this interesting? Like... We're a room full of human beings and, and, you know, everyone in this room has or likely will, before your sojourn is over, will have the experience of possibly quite intense betrayal. Um, betrayal can only happen like from people who are close to you, you know, family, friends, work colleagues. You can be betrayed by a church community. Um, people of color certainly have the experience even more now it's more vivid of betrayal from your country that it's supposed to be like a, a place for you that you're a citizen of and you you love and betrayal is a is a is a deep experience um, so here we are picturing the risen Jesus with with John and we have a point of identification with him because we share in common with Jesus um, trauma, uh, injury, um, the residual effects of betrayal that maybe the betrayal's over now, but you still have the residual effects of it. And there's something about the injury of betrayal that cuts especially deep um, Betrayal is caused by, by people close to you turning on you, causing you harm. And the harm is greater the closer the people are to you. And often people who um, are betrayed feel shame. It's, it really doesn't, it's not rational, but it's, it's almost automatic. If, if family members reject you, as our gay congregants um, raised in religious families have often experienced, it's natural to feel shame. Um, it's, auto, it's an automatic physical response to being put out of a group. That's what shame is. It's automatic. Everyone who's put out of a group experiences shame. Um, or even just having your good standing in the group revoked. You will feel shame. Um, if, if, you were, um, if you lost a job, and it doesn't matter the reason you lost the job, um, 
You know, it, the company was downsizing, you, you were laid off, the economy tanked or whatever, and you lose your job, people feel shame from losing their job just because they were put out of a work environment. The reason really doesn't matter. It's, almost, it's an automatic physical response that human beings have because it's so important for us to be part of groups. And then there's also the shame when, when a person is betrayed, the shame of feeling duped. You know, like, how did I let this person get so close? Why didn't I see this coming? That's a, that's a unique um, experience with betrayal. Um, it's a difficult injury to share with others, betrayal. It's a, so it's a very isolating kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, divorce, uh, for example. Some, some divorces don't involve, like, betrayal, but many do. And, and often, if they involve betrayal, it's really difficult for the betrayed party to share that, right? I mean, marriage is, the fact that you're married is like a public kind of thing, and then you get divorced, and then people wonder, and they're like, they want to know what happened, and do you say what happened when it's a betrayal? You know, that's a very complicated thing that so many people go through. You know, this person might be the uh, parent of your children. You don't want to, like, just throw out their stuff. And you know there's this thing, in, in, you know, in kind of common wisdom that, well, it's 50-50. It's always 50-50. Well, I've seen a lot of marriages fall apart. It's not always 50-50. Sometimes one person is really the, the culprit, you know what I mean? And, but how do you explain that to people or to friends? It's, just, it's a super fraught, complicated thing when you experience betrayal, sharing that. Um, after you experience betrayal, how do you trust people again? That's a complicated thing. And yet our happiness depends on our ability to trust people. Um, there's no reason to think that as a human being, Jesus didn't have all these feelings that betrayed people have, and that's signified by the fact that he has these wounds, and they're significant to him, and he wants to show them to his friends. Um, you know, um, when my wife of 42 years died suddenly in 2012, I was awash in comfort. I mean, I had never experienced the power of like communal comfort before. It, it was staggering. I mean, people were bringing me, dropping wine off at the house, and people were dropping, dropping off the, uh, what do you call them, uh, casseroles and lasagna. And after a while, I got word out, wine instead, not <laughs> have enough casseroles, you know, lasagna, and it's good. And then you, uh, strangers will comfort you. If you lose a spouse suddenly, I, I, I we had to go to the bank and bring the death certificate and take Nancy's name off the thing. And I sit down with the, you know, the branch manager or whatever. And she says, what can I do for you today, Mr. Wilson? Well, I need to take my wife's name off the account. She died. I am so sorry. And she, you know, her empathy thing was happening. And I just felt a warm embrace, you know, from from this bank employee who was like, I was, she was going to take really good care of me. You, uh, certain things you feel a lot of comfort over. Uh, two years later, 
I underwent another trauma. I lost my church family, and many of you know about that. And in the process, most of my close friends, actually, um, fellow pastors and colleagues over, over the brouhaha that uh, is happening in the church these days over LGBT. That was so much more complicated, that loss, because it involves so much betrayal. You know, like the denominational officials who brought the hammer down were actually my friends. They were like my personal friends. And that's just a small example. So after I, I you know, we, we got the church going here and, and, and eventually I went to therapy. I think that was a good idea. And after a year of therapy, and in the sessions, I'm like unpacking these, uh, this whole series of things. And he's going, what? Did that happen? And whatever. After about a year, and remember this session, he said to me, how many people know what you went through? And I was like, hmm. I mean, really know it, you know. I said, it's actually, it's a pretty small list of people. I mentioned just like a, a, few, a few names. And then he said, Maybe if you were more open about it, selectively, you would receive more comfort. You know, like a big injury requires a lot of comfort. But if you're hiding the injury because of shame or whatever reason or it's complicated, you don't get as much comfort as you actually need. I thought it was a brilliant piece of advice. Maybe you could selectively share this with more people and you would receive more comfort. And so I, I, I'm a very good patient, you know, and I said about to do that and we had a board retreat and Emily and I both took a little time to share more in depth what we had been through. And we were a board member, um, uh, or Suzanne, was especially good afterwards, after I shared my little bit, she was like, oh, Ken, I had no idea. I am so sorry. You know, that was, that was comfort. And I was like, oh, this feels good. I didn't even know I needed that. And then I would meet, with, I probably did this with some of you, some newcomers would ask, I'd meet for coffee, and they'd, people will often want to know, what's the story of the church? How did you get started? And I used to give a super sanitized version of it. You know, like, this happened, that happened, and it was fine, or, you know, whatever, you know, high road and all that kind of stuff. And I started selectively, like, giving more some of the gruesome details. And newcomers were just so sweet. They would go like, Oh my gosh, that must have been really hard for you. How did you even survive that? And it, it was comfort um, coming, coming my way. Um, Bernie Brown, the researcher from um, the University of Houston, she studies shame, courage, and vulnerability. She's got a Netflix thing, she's got a YouTube thing, she's got a gazillion books. We've done a sermon series based on the work of... Brene Brown, and she's, she's just interviewed, she and her team, um, just thousands of people to understand how do people who live wholeheartedly and demonstrate courage in their life, like what, what traits do they have? And the thing that her research revealed that was such a shock to her um, and kind of a shock to the social science world was that people who live wholeheartedly and demonstrate courage have really one thing in common more than anything else and that one thing is the ability to reveal their vulnerability to other people 
meaning if they have a weakness or a struggle that they're having or they've been through a difficult period and they're, they're hurting from it or being vulnerable is actually highly associated with um, wholehearted living and with courage. And she tells this story Brene Brown does where she says uh, on, the, on an airplane people ask her, what are you, you know, what are you doing? What do you do? And she goes, well, I'm a researcher. Well, what do you research? And one time she's talking to this guy and, she says, well, I, I, research, um, I research courage and vulnerability. And he's like in his 30s, he's in business class. He says, oh, both sides of the continuum, right? And she goes, no, wrong. Actually, they, they, they go together in my research. The people who are able to be courageous are the people who have figured out how to be, um, reveal their vulnerability to other people and to share it and embrace it themselves and all that really really important research when Jesus showed the disciples hello and then he his opening move is to show them his wounds he was doing a classic vulnerability move um, and I want to want us to notice a few things about that move first he was selective he was not showing his wounds willy-nilly to anyone um, and yes, these were friends who had betrayed him, but he also knew that they felt deep remorse. Remember earlier when, when Peter denies Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest? It's in the account, I think it's in John, it might be in Luke, uh, Peter catches Jesus' eye at a distance, and that's when Peter goes, it's like, oh God, I, what have I just done? And then it, it says he just like wept uncontrollably. So Jesus had a clue that these disciples, though they betrayed him, were feeling intense remorse over it. And then still he didn't, he didn't like lead, uh, um, let them off the hook uh, easily. Uh, showing his wounds was really part of patching things up with him. He didn't minimize his injury. He wasn't like, oh, no big deal. Fine now, I'm risen. Hey, well, who could be better than me, risen from the dead? I'm fine. He's saying, by showing the wounds, um, what happened to me hurt, and I carry the scars of it. That was the first thing about him that he revealed to them. Now, the text gets very subtle here because um, their first response is joy. And then his response to their joy is a very sobering statement. So I want to read that. Thus on seeing the Lord, the disciples were overjoyed. So Jesus again said to them, hello. So the first time he appears, a guy's in the room, you know, like, what is this? He says, hello. He shows them his wounds. And then they say, oh, this, this is Jesus. So he needs to say hello again because <laughs> they recognize him. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And again, we read that like religiously, like, oh, the disciples are going to be sent out to conquer the world and all that kind of, but the context is they are frightened. They are scared. There's a messianic movement that is being crushed by the Roman empire and they are associated with the person who's leading that movement and they're afraid and their lives are at risks and they're excited and happy to see Jesus and he says 
I'm going to send you out just like I was sent out as sheep among wolves. It will involve suffering. And it puts a kind of damper on their joy. But it's also like you'll get a second chance to be faithful under pressure. And then it says, saying this, he breathed on, on them and says to them, it goes into present tense again, let's experience it kind of thing, receive a Holy Spirit. Receive a Holy Spirit. It's very close to the Greek here. It's not the, receive the Holy Spirit, is some dramatic theological event, receive the Holy Spirit. That's more like Pentecost. This is receive a Holy Spirit. Now I want to just pull out a little experience from my Pentecostal experience um, where this is common. You can receive a brush of the Holy Spirit. Ben and I share Pentecostal experience and background. He knows what I'm talking about in the Pentecostal world. It's called a witness. You know, so you're in worship or something happens or something says something and ooh, you get a shiver. It goes through your body. I, ooh. I just felt one now, literally. I felt a shiver. And, and you learn when you're Pentecostal to recognize that that's a Holy Spirit moment. That's a witness. It's a passing thing. It's not going to, don't worry. You're not going to be like Gonzo, you know, drunk in the Holy Spirit for the rest of your life because you get a Holy Spirit moment because Jesus breathes on you. It's just like a little thing, like a little nudge, like, hey, you're loved. Things are going to, everything's going to work out just fine. And, and it's a Holy Spirit moment. So I take off from my Pentecostal experience to recognize. And I, I have these frequently and I enjoy them every time I do. And I heartily commend them to everyone. <laughs> Receive a Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you let go, they are let go. Those you hold fast, they have been held fast. This is very curious. Because Jesus gave them a prayer. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's kind of like it implied you better forgive people. <laughs> like if you want to be forgiven, you better forgive people. This is an entirely different tone. Let me read that again. For those whose sins you let go, they are let, they are let go. The people are let go. Those you hold fast, they have been held fast. I wonder if this has to do with his own experience of betrayal. When you are betrayed, you cannot feel forced to forgive. That does not work. You cannot feel forced to forgive. What you need to feel is your agency and your power in the relationship. And I think this is what Jesus is reinforcing with his disciples. He said, you know, you're going to be experiencing some stuff like I experienced. And if you hold those things against the people, then they're going to be retained. And if you choose to forgive, they're going to be forgive. And you are the powerful agent in the process. And he's recognizing that. Showing people your wounds takes a lot of courage. And you have to be careful who you show them to. And it's really important that you not feel forced to do it. Um, one of the things that's really hard about betrayal is that it's an injury that lingers long. You know? Any of you who have lost um, loved ones, dear loved ones, know that the culture's capacity to comfort you 
is time limited <laughs> and you need more comfort than the culture understands and you know the typical thing is well give people a year you know and, and uh, you know people can be pretty attentive for even up to a year but if you've lost a loved one you know like a year is like that's when you're scratching the surface of the of the loss and and people move on and, and the comfort doesn't come and, and, and that's, a, that's a thing that's part of the, lo- the experience of loss but one about things about betrayal is that in particular it's an injury that lingers really long so I broke my um, ankle maybe seven years ago and the orthopedic surgeon said to me Actually, it, you'll be much better in six months and, you know, six weeks and six months, but it will take two full years before your ankle is returned to normal strength. Just keep that in mind. Two years. I'm thinking two years. That's a long time. Well, betrayal is a longer, it's a deeper injury. It takes longer than a broken angle. I've, I've found some really good comfort in Psalm 120 from the Robert, Trans, uh, Robert Alter translation. Hebrew scholar uh, came out with the whole Hebrew Bible translated. Um, and uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the translations of the Hebrew are not as well informed as this guy. Um, and this is Psalm 120. To the Lord, when I was in straits, I called out and he answered me. So this is someone who's dealing with some real Real difficult stuff. He calls out, Lord, save my life from lying lips, from a tongue of deceit. This is like a betrayal, kind of. Save my soul, my life, from lying lips, from a tongue of deceit. You know, when you're lied to over and over and over, that is just so hard. What can it give you? What can it add? A tongue of deceit. What's the effect of being lied to or deceived or betrayed? A warrior's honed arrows with broomwood coals. He's got little notes in here. And he says, in the Psalms, malicious speech is characterized, represented as a sharp arrow or sword. And then he says, broomwood, broomwood coals, was known to burn hot for a long time, even when the surface of the coals had turned to ash. There's something about broomwood coals, that it just, the heat in that coal, it can burn for a long time, even when it's covered by ash. And you might think it's been, well, it's been a long time, and then you poke that thing and whoop. You get, you get burned again. This is the experience of, of uh, betrayal that the psalmists are so tuned into. The psalms are great for betrayal, by the way. I highly recommend them. So the wounds of betrayal linger long, and we can only um, show them uh, safely in stages. So, and I see this happening in John's Gospel. Like this first evening, it's an in and out interaction with the disciples. You know, hello, you know, they're overjoyed. This is what's going to happen. Breathe on you, receive the Holy Spirit, boom, and boom, he's out. It's like in and out. It's almost a hit and run interaction, actually. It's like in and out. And then a week later, there's a revisit. Thomas was one of the primary disciples who wasn't there. 
And um, he missed out on the action. And he hears what's going on. He says, I, I'm not... I'm not buying, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid another time, <laughs> you know. I'm not, no, unless I see those wounds and I put my hands in his side. I'm, I'm, I'm not on the same bus you guys are on. And then the next Sunday evening, Jesus appears again. And it's a more extended uh, interaction. And, and this is how uh, that goes. Um, he says to Thomas, and this is all that present tense thing happening. He says, inviting us in to picture it. Bring your finger here and look at my hands. So the previously, hello, showed them, kind of at a distance. This time, he says to one of them, Thomas, bring your finger here and like inspect my hands and touch. So he's, now he's being touched. His, his wound is being touched by another human being. That might have been the first Thomas might have been the first human being to have touched that, that wound. And this is an intimate connection happening for both Thomas and for Jesus. And then he adds, and bring your hand and put it into my side. So the side wound was a large wound. If it's described in the literal grief as take your hand and put it into my side. And Thomas does that. Apparently, puts his hand into Jesus' side. What is, what is all this telling us? Well, it's telling us Jesus is a revelation of God for people who have experienced betrayal. This is, this is who Jesus is. He is a revelation of God for people who have experienced betrayal. He experienced betrayal and he carries the scars of his betrayal to this day. If Jesus has a real existence and when we're singing these Jesus songs, he's hearing and listening and there's some actual interaction, then it's an interaction with the someone who has scars today. He understands the lingering effect of betrayal, Jesus does. He really understands the lingering effect of betrayal when it feels like you've shared it with a few people and you're like, you should be over it, then he understands the lingering effect. He himself took his time dealing with it and we can take our time dealing with it. I think this is part of the message. So let's just do a quiet reflection as we often do. This will be a bit of a guided, a guided reflection. I just invite you to get yourself comfortable in your space there. Let's take a couple, three minutes. Uh, maybe begin by taking a few deep breaths, maybe in through the nose, out through the mouth as you center yourself. And now if you would um, picture a place that would be really safe and in your view ideal for an interaction with another person that's relaxed and um, lovely. So you might picture a place in your own home where you've had those interactions. Go ahead and just start picturing that. It could be a coffee shop. It could be outside in a park. Just take a minute to Fill in that scene. Maybe picture yourself just sitting there by yourself, relaxed, 
enjoying the experience. just return to trying to picture that scene what it looks like what it feels like any smells associated with it and now if you'd like to uh, just imagine um, Jesus taking like coming from somewhere and um, sitting near you in whatever near you is comfortable for you. It could be across from you, could be right next to you, could be at an angle. If picturing Jesus doesn't, doesn't work, just picture God in a form of love that has some tangible quality to it, an orb of light or something. No conversation, just taking a seat next to you or near you as though you had a prearranged uh, appointment and now it's beginning. Just take a little time to picture that. Now, if you'd like to, just imagine that this, um, this figure, Jesus, or this presence of God that you're imagining sitting near you simply says, I know. Just like that, I know. What's that feel like? second the final thing that I invite you to imagine him saying is just take all the time you need what would that feel like